welcome to Loud and Clear. I'm your host, Olivia Adams, and today we have a very special guest on the podcast. I am both honored and thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Amelia Nagoski. Amelia Nagoski, DMA, stands for Doctorate of Musical Arts, is the co-author with her sister Emily at the New York Times bestselling Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, and The Burnout Workbook. Her job is to run around and wave her arms, making funny noises, and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. She lives in New England with her husband and two rescue dogs. Welcome. I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. It's totally my pleasure to be here. Awesome. So before we get into the book content of Burnout, I wonder if you can answer our universal opening question for this podcast, which is what was your path to becoming a musician? Uh, I had a very unusually straight path. There was a very distinct calling for me in the eighth grade. Um, I would stand in kind of like the place where music happened in our house and listen to vinyl records of like (laughs) Andrew Lloyd Webber's Requiem, for example, and like wave (laughs) my arms in front of the mirror and something about that, just everything in me went, this is what we're going to do. So I, you know, found the plan, you know, take all the music classes in high school, Mm -hmm. major in music ed, teach for a while, get a master's in conducting, get a doctorate in conducting, and I'm going to be a conductor. And that is literally what I did. There were like road bumps along the way, but I just followed the path. Yeah. You knew you wanted to be. I think that I was was similar in that, like, I remember sort of doing exams and recitals. And then people asked, like, what do you want to be? And I was like, well, I always wanted to be a teacher. Like, I knew that from a little age. But then I was like, well, I'm going to teach music. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And undergrad, master's, now doctorate. (laughs) I'm in the thick of it, but... Yeah. So in the book, and for anyone who hasn't read Burnout, um, we're, that's what we're going to primarily talk about today. I just highly recommend it. I think everybody should read it, particularly if you're of the female identity. But in the book, you open with this concept of completing the cycle and how that's essential to interrupting a pattern that leads towards burnout. And I wonder if you could talk to our listeners about what that means. This is the most important thing that I took and the thing that started me on a path toward recovering from the stress-related illness that I had. In my own doctor program, by the second year, I was hospitalized with stress-induced pain. Uh, And luckily, I have an identical twin sister who has a PhD in health behavior and was able to point me to resources about stuff like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So... What I learned that kept me from being hospitalized more than necessary was that stress is not an idea. Stress is not like a a philosophy or a concept. Stress is an experience that happens in your body. It's a physiological cycle with the beginning, a middle, and an end. It involves electrical signals. It involves neurotransmitters, which are basically just chemicals, right? Hormones, just chemicals, and they change the state of your body. So it came from the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness and, you know, our proto-human evolutionary ancestors might be having a normal day and then they encounter, oh my God, it's a saber-toothed tiger and something happens in their body where their nervous system identifies threat and responds with a particular combination of stress juice, a combination, you know, adrenaline and cortisol and glucocorticoids, oh my. And those flood your system telling every system in your body that something new has to happen right now. We can't just keep on going like we've been going. We need to save our lives here. 
So, you know, your heart rate increases, your your breathing changes, and some of the stuff you're not going to be consciously aware of. It's happening far below the level of conscious awareness, like your immune system. Your immune system takes up a lot of energy. So when you're in the stress response, your immune system gets the notice, hey, hey, stress response, we're saving our lives right now. So like, can we have your energy? How about you take a back seat so we can drive for the moment? And your immune system's like, yep, got the signal, save our lives, because who cares about malaria when there's, you know, a saber-toothed tiger coming after us. And similarly, like your reproductive system takes a lot of energy. So when you're in the stress response, your reproductive system gets the signal, hey, hey, we need we need all the energy we can get here. So like, could you, could you back off? And it totally does. And then with all this new blood and oxygen carrying nutrients to your muscles, they are now have the maximum energy they need to fight or flee, which I recommend doing from Sabertooth Tiger if you ever <laughs> encounter one. So you run, you jump, you leap, you climb, you hide in the cleft of the rock and you look out and you can see that you have escaped and the Sabertooth Tiger is walking away. You have saved your life escaped the thing that initiated the stress response cycle by using the exact behavior that the stress response cycle prepared you for. And um, these days, this cycle with beginning, a middle, and an end doesn't get to complete in the same way because we're no longer chased by saber-toothed tigers. But our bodies don't have a wide variety of ways to respond to stress. Mm. So when our phone dings, when our taxes are due, when we have to go stand in line at the DMV, this feels a little bit of threat that our bodies respond to in a limited number of ways. And a lot of it's based in that ancient evolutionary adapted stress response. But we no longer can solve those problems with fight or flight. Like you want to fight everybody at the DMV sometimes, right? <laughs> but like, that's not the correct way to live in a society. That's yeah. yeah, no, what you do is you stand in line and you're patient and you're polite. And that is the correct social thing to do. However, that doesn't change the fact that the stress response cycle was initiated in your body. You've still got this complete system change going on inside you. And you're just ignoring it and letting it be. So the good news about this is that your nervous system doesn't have cognition the way that you as a person do. So any kind of surrogate fight or flight that you do at a different time can burn up that stress response cycle that was left incomplete. You can complete it anytime you want in the future when it's in an appropriate situation. So it means you don't have to wait for the thing that caused you stress to go away because you can deal with the stress in your body right now. Right. I think that's so helpful. And I'm curious, do you think that that is in any way related to this is like my anecdotal, like own personal experience, when I have a break week from school, or when I finish submitting final exams and student grades, you get sick? Yes. Okay. That's 100% why. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's maybe the most, I won't say it's 100% the reason that happens, but it's maybe the most common reason. And I know so many people for whom that's true because you are under stress during the semester, during concert season. So your body keeps the symptoms at bay. It protects mm -hmm. you from feeling them. And then when you enter a period of safety, it lets the break off that stress response that was preventing yeah. you from feeling those symptoms. And they just all oh, come on out right away. Yeah, I would always get sick the first week after I submitted my last final, like just like clockwork. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I taught college for nine years before COVID. And 
All my students said exactly the same thing. As soon as I go home for break, I get sick for a week. Interesting. Do you think that musicians with all of the odd hours that we work with the gig economy, like the endless practicing towards this perfection goal of honing our craft and all the sort of like hustling that happens because there's, I mean, there is a lack of job security unless you're privileged enough to work for a school or a university or institution. We're sort of our own bosses. It's a lot of entrepreneurial work. Do you think that in early career, we're like more primed for burnout because of the amount that you take on? Yes. I think the gig economy situation like that exists now that's making news about how bad it is for people's like life comfort, that came from us. We're the ones who invented the gig economy, right? <laughs> um, so we've been struggling with that for even longer than it has been kind of newsworthy for mm. the broader population. So yes, as much as any gig economy kind of work is stressful for people and adds additional burden to their lives, absolutely, it has that same impact for musicians. But I think musicians have even more specific stressors and stress experiences that non-musicians don't have. Like just starting really at the deepest root of how the nervous system functions, um, how the brain functions, there's a lot of studies that show that a high degree of musical training, like conservatory style intense training, changes how musicians' brains function. I think the theory is that music is a whole brain function, right? There's not a music area of the brain. Music is social, so it exists in that part of the brain. It's also often verbal, um, it's aural, it has to do with physiological balance and understanding of alignment of your body in space and the measuring of time. It just takes so many different parts of your brain and capabilities of your brain to make music that it it changes your brain faster than almost any kind any other kind of learning mm. um so there just are neurological differences this isn't like set up as like oh musicians are by default then neurodivergent but i would say that there is a difference between yeah. musicians and regular people it's identifiable on fmris that you can see when you're trained the difference between a musician brain and a non-musician brain it's that drastic so that kind of just living as a different kind of person in the world is more stressful than living in a world where you conform to what most people are. And then there's the fact that music itself happens in your body. We all use our bodies to make music and bodies are also where our emotions live. Mm -hmm. Our body is where our stress exists. So when we are using that same instrument that is experiencing stress and emotions and trying to use it in a way that's free and balanced and buoyant and access to deep breath, et cetera, et cetera, it can interfere because that yeah. instrument is being tarnished by external experiences. And I think this is especially true for singers, but it's mm -hmm. definitely also true for the way that making music with your body through an instrument also works. So this relationship between our emotions and our music making just creates a really direct impact on both the stress in our bodies and the music making in our bodies. And then there's the sort of the lifestyle differences for musicians that create different sort of personality focuses. Musicians in, ten in general tend to have higher personality level anxiety, not like acute anxiety where a specific situation makes you feel anxious, but just like as a person you are just more anxious 
conscious than average people. And that can... So the result of this is that the work we do of of making music can actually become a source of stress because it's associated with us using the stress in our bodies coming in between us using our bodies to make this music. And because the work of being a musician has so much to do with like judgment and auditioning and approval and acceptance, which is one of the most stressful things that that people battle in the world in general. And so this is in addition to all of the other stressors that everyone else faces, you know, living in the, you know, white supremacist, heteronormative, rabidly exploitative, late capitalistic patriarchy. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So like on top of all the other ways to be different yeah. from the arbitrary socially constructed ideal, musicians face a very specific other kind of difference that crosses all of the other intersections of mm -hmm. race and age and gender and the texture and location of body hair, how, what your education level is, what your health status is, what your mental health status is, uh, what, what language is your primary language? Is it the same primary language as most of the people around you? Because that makes it really hard to... um. So my uh, <laughs> my point is being a musician is another way of being different from the socially constructed ideal. Yeah. I mean, on top of that is if you want to be a musician later in life as as a career path, I mean, I believe anybody can be a musician at any point in their life, yeah. but if you want to do it as a career path, it means that you were studying usually at a, at a young age. Yep. And as somebody who teaches small humans how to play the piano and sing in public, you know, we put them in those stressful situations and try to make them as I tried at least to make them as least stressful as possible. And yet still they have that experience of panic that can happen when you hit the stage that happens to a lot of us. Yeah. As musicians, as teachers, one of the greatest things we can do for our students is give them this opportunity to experience success or failure in a place that's safe, where if they fail, it doesn't actually harm anyone, right? Like brain surgery, you fail, there could be catastrophic results. Yes. <laughs> in music, if you fail, like, it's just music. Yeah. Like, you learn that failure is safe and that yeah. It, it's okay to try and push yourself out of your comfort zone because it's it's okay. It's it, nothing's nothing too bad can go wrong. Yeah, I remember when I was doing my adjudicator training several years ago, and the person I was training with, her daughter is a surgeon, and there was you know one of those classes where there was lots of memory bugs, like we call them, you know, just memory mistakes happen. And she gets up and she goes, "Aren't you glad that being a musician, nobody dies when we make a mistake?" Yeah. <laughs> Was that person me? Because I definitely have yeah. said that to choirs. No, I was actually, it definitely wasn't. But um, I do say that to choirs in festivals. And I made it really explicit with my college choirs that one of the things that they would benefit from in my rehearsal is that there would never be any dire consequences for them making mistakes. So they could use this time to mm -hmm. learn what it feels like and what the experience could be if you decide to like just be bold and take a risk and see if you're right about a thing and then if you're wrong okay that's no big deal but at least you get to practice trying being decisive and bold and exactly. and fearless about mistakes yeah. And I teach my students, like I had a conversation with one of my seven-year-olds the other day of, you know, we can't be musicians without making mistakes. That's just how we, that's how we learn to make music is we make mm -hmm. mistakes and it's a place where we can make mistakes and it's okay. And so I, I agree with you. It, it's a gift and it's a safe, safe place to be able to learn to make mistakes. Unfortunately, we live in a society that has commodified perfection. Yeah. 
Like, I really think American Idol ruined casual music making for people <sighs> because they now they feel like it's standard and default to judge someone pass or fail on whatever the socially constructed ideal of a voice could be when in fact as you're saying anyone can make music almost anyone can sing unless you literally have a cognitive deficit of amusia pitch amusia right, or rhythmic yeah. amusia that's gonna like but that's a very small percentage of people and those people generally aren't all that interested in music because it doesn't sound like anything to like them really yeah, yeah. Like, so anybody who wants to make music can make music. Will they be Jennifer Hudson? I mean, statistically, probably not. But they can still yeah. have an amazing voice that can contribute to the lives of their friends and family and their church community and their, their community choir and their school choirs. Like, we are competing with a large corporate presence that wants to shame everyone about their voices. And I, it makes me so, so angry. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, but like the best we can do is point out to our students, I know that you hear these other messages, but I'm here to tell you that they are wrong. They're trying to shame you. They're trying to make you feel like you can't do what they do so that you'll turn over your money in order to make somebody else to pay for someone else to make the music for you. But you have the power to make the music yourself and yeah. to love it yourself. You don't have to buy it from someone else. It's, it's, it's yeah. a corporate Agreed. Absolutely. In your book, you talk about how racism affects burnout. And there's like a lot of research to back this up. We know queer, trans, indigenous, black people of color feel those barriers more acutely. I had read a study done by Christina Scharf about how young girls feel it in, in music schools. Often like they're tokenized and they carry like Martha Minow says, it's like the burden of difference. And we just talked about this with uh, Dr. Leah Claiborne on her research um, just a couple of weeks ago. Can you talk a bit more about how burnout can affect QT BIPOC folks at a different level? Yeah, it's all the intersections, right? So yeah. um, it's also socioeconomic status, employment status. Like if you're a musician who doesn't have a job right now, you're going to be less likely to get hired for another job while you don't have a job, which is really just a catch-22. Like your housing status, if you are not homed at a mailing address, that makes it hard to get gigs. But if you can't get gigs, how are you going to change your housing status so that you are in a position of safety where you can do that? Of course, your age and your race and your ethnicity and your hair and your sexuality and gender and all of the intersections. You know, in, in the U.S. especially, it's it's Christianity. If you are not a Christian, you are a member of a non-dominant community, and that also interferes with whether or not people are going to relate to you and feel like they can trust you to hire you on the broad, you know, broad stroke yeah. cultural yeah. level. Neurodivergence is a huge problem because even when people are like, we welcome neurodivergence and we want to make accommodations, but then when they actually have a conversation with an autistic person it's challenging because that person is autistic i am an autistic person so speaking from my own experience on both sides of the hiring process having a conversation with an autistic person can be more challenging because the communication style just is different and you might feel like that's a oh we just didn't click so it's not a good fit but no what happened was you just encountered an autistic person so you're not going to give them a job because you didn't click with them because they're out anyway so yes. that yeah. also is inferior so my, my point is like yes every kind of difference means that you fall shorter and shorter of the arbitrary socially constructed ideal which is overwhelmingly white male straight cis rich educated thin, able-bodied, you know, mentally healthy, holistic, 
the list goes on and on yeah. of the requirements that we are all supposed to conform to that literally no people in the world conform. Nobody does. We're all on the outside to some degree. But the more differences we have mm -hmm. from that single narrow culturally constructed ideal, the further we fall short of belonging into the larger group. So remembering that humans are social psychologists, Jonathan Haidt calls us 90% chimp, 10% bee. Yeah, I love species. that. <laughs> yeah, a herd species. We're meant yeah. to, to do big things together. But mm -hmm. when you're in a herd, where's the safest place to be? Right in the middle. And if you are someone who is literally on the fringes, then when the lion comes, that's you, you are the most literally at risk. And it turns out that in our society, as, as it is now as a herd, if you are on the fringes, because you are a person of color, because you are queer, because you don't speak the dominant language or participate in the dominant religion, then you are you can't be in the middle of the herd and there is a little voice in your head that looks at what the world says is ideal and at you and its job is to decide is the world to blame is the world expecting too much of me are the world's expectations you know malarkey bull honky I want to swear, but, you know, I'm trying to be professional <laughs> while I contain my rage. Or is it your fault for not conforming? Could you be doing more to cross this abyss that stands between who you are and what the world wants of you? So you've got this little, in the book, we call it the mad woman in the attic. It comes from a, yeah. Yeah. a literary trope yeah. um, from Jane Eyre, because in that book, there's a guy who's got a mad woman in his attic and like spiritually don't we all like we all yeah, have got right? this yeah. like little mad lady <laughs> in our brains uh telling us that we are not good enough that we have fallen short yeah. or that the world is a garbage place full of garbage humans who will never be acceptable and nothing is worth living and nihilism reigns there's a lot of common sense advice out there that says to like just shut down that critical voice ignore that voice in your head that says you're not good enough but that voice that's saying you're not good enough is saying you're not conforming to the ideal and it's trying to keep you safe because it wants yeah. you to be in the middle of the herd so rather than just ignoring it or shoving it aside the actual evidence-based strategy there is to listen to the voice without judgment or criticism, listen to what it has to say, and then let it know that you are grateful that it's trying to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. I hear this criticism and that you want me to follow your advice so that I can be safe in the middle of the herd. But you know what? I have my own herd right here. Yeah. This little bubble of people who yeah. who love me and care about my well-being as much as I care about theirs. And I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to protect you. And we're all going to protect each other. We'll be our own herd together. And I don't need to conform to that artificially, socially constructed ideal of whiteness, thinness, masculinity, you know, it's heteronormativity. Yeah. So listening to the critical voice, not following her directions, because she's a mad woman, right? She's been placed <laughs> in an abyss. She lives in an abyss. And uh, it's her job to decide who to blame. And that that's a job that would make anybody crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, words I use advisedly as someone who has had chronic mental illness her whole life. Yeah, I actually have a song about that. Do you want to hear a song about the abyss? I is that okay? I absolutely want to hear a song about it. This is a song about noticing the abyss. Who does the world say that I should be? And what do 
I do if I don't agree? Rational me says that I am enough. My primate brain says not fitting is rough. Solutions are clear. I should be myself and deal with the world when it puts me through hell. Or easier still is to be what they say. That only requires I give my soul away to the abyss. Two opposite goals here ask you to choose. Whichever you pick, there's something to lose. But you're not alone, we're all on this road. And going together is a journey of hope through the abyss. on the dominant because it just trails off into it trails off into the abyss the, the, the journey is just going to continue <laughs> i love that thank you for sharing that with us as a music teacher who teaches lots of children and works with choirs you're speaking my language yeah 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 <laughs> And um, I would say primarily my studio is made up of kids who are BIPOC, but they are not fitting into the white dominant heteronormative narrative. And I also work with a large quantity of students with exceptionalities who came to me because I was willing to teach them when teachers said, oh, you don't have it or whatever the it, the it thing is. I hate those and, teachers. I yeah, hate them I with too. a raging, fiery passion. <laughs> And that was how that was how I literally stumbled into my PhD research was because I kept having to fight battles for my students because they did not fit into the the box that the classical music they want to play classical music, right? They want to do the festivals and the examinations and the competitions that everyone else does because they love it and they enjoy it, but they do not fit into the box. Yep. And I have a theory that people who don't fit into the box are drawn to the arts. And it that's kind of why music has become a space full of queer people, uh, increasingly open to people of different races and ethnicities. Yeah. And music has become kind of a safe place for people to experience them. It's like a social loophole where like your big feelings are, I mean, that's what music's for. They're okay. It's for the big feelings. Yeah. yeah. It's safe here. So yeah. it's like this loophole where you get to like go have your big feelings and it's not only encouraged and it's not only allowed, but it's encouraged. Yeah. And I think the people who need that most are the ones who don't conform to the socially constructed ideal. And talking about, I know you're talking about like your younger students who don't fit in the box, but like I as a, as a feminine bodied person and I as an autistic person did not fit into any boxes for being a conductor. And I had to right. fight so hard to get an education because my teachers didn't see me as a conductor. They just couldn't see it. My body didn't show it. The way I communicated to them didn't show it. And it was, oh, I mean, it was so stressful. I ended up in the hospital with stress-induced pain twice. It's this uphill climb where you have to, I was talking with this person is as an adult. They are now a touring musician, but has a load of exceptionalities. And, and they were saying like, my whole life, I worked twice as hard yep. to get half as far. Yep. But it still, music was the thing that they're like, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't drop it. I, I couldn't leave it. Yeah. 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 
I mean, also, it happens to be that one of the characteristics of autism that shows up in a lot of us is a kind of like fixation and obsession with things like a hyper focus and a rigidity to our plans. Mm. So when I, in the eighth grade, was like, I'm going to be a conductor, that, you know, 12-year-old Amelia turned into 40-year-old Amelia who followed the same plan for all those years. Because I'm not changing my plan. My therapist, when I was in the middle of my doctoral program, was like, well, you can quit. If it's if it's really, it seems like it's taking a toll on your health and you, you could just walk away. And I was like, uh, no, 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 I can't. You don't understand. I, I can't. There is no way. So yeah. that is yeah. among <laughs> the ways that autism specifically. But I also wanted to say that it's particularly bad in classical music mm. because classical music is 100% rooted in white supremacist patriarchy. I mean, musicology yeah. was literally invented by Germans in the late 19th century. Like the folks that Hitler was like, hey, they really got it going on. They were literally trying to prove that German music uh, specifically and and, and European music especially. Right, exactly. Yeah. That this is inherently better and it's because we're white and we're making this kind of music. That is the foundation of musicology is proving that dead white men make better music than anyone Ask else. Ethnomusicology is like, you know, was birthed out of a very colonial notion. Exactly. So that we even, get to be, yeah, the dominant yeah. culture that, yeah. Yeah. So even the notion that we should study other people's kinds of music was always intended to draw a comparison, of course, based on our own aesthetic standards, you know, that come from the Romans. Yeah. And the idea of like women making music professionally, always so scandalous and, you know, buried in history. So when you are trying to make music that is made of ancient music, and the people who study ancient music have come from this deep, long history of patriarchy and white supremacy. You are not just in a system, but in a field that is made on a foundation and built with walls entirely yeah. of white supremacist patriarchy. And it is toxic as hell. Absolutely. My master's research, I did it on essentially how the piano curriculum, I, I did a data study to show how the piano curriculum was just in, embedded with whiteness and ableism. Yeah. And I had somebody, this was, I was in my undergrad sort of prepping to apply to my master's and I was like, you know, I'm still pretty passionate and fiery, but I was very passionate and fiery. And I had a professor comment that says, you sound like an angry feminist in this paper. And I was like, do I not have a right to be an angry feminist in this paper? I am trying to like hold in not just my rage on your behalf because that's infuriating and inappropriate and exactly what the problem is. I have my own stories that are exactly like that. And I know so many other women in academic music who have had identical experiences. Just yes, that experience that you had times a million goes on every day in academic institutions all over the world. Yeah. It, yeah. And it the only way for it to change is for people like us to be persistent and demand that we deserve the education, we deserve the degree, that our perspective is valid and slowly take over. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> With our feminist agenda. Okay, I, uh, one, one tiny story. My first year yes. 
teaching at a university, my, my first semester teaching Music 101, and my uh, student evaluations come back, and one of them is, seems to have a feminist agenda, might want to rethink that. And I was like, okay, I am going to rethink it, because if you only suspect my feminist agenda, then I have not made it clear enough that my feminist agenda is front and center in yeah. the way I teach about music. <laughs> yes, inclusiveness Absolutely. and diversity is what I am here to teach you about. So yeah, so I doubled yeah. down on the feminism and the you I know, like it. I would have loved to send in on that class. <laughs> um, maybe this is the perfect segue into talking about the human givers syndrome, because when I read that, like a light bulb went off in my head and I was just reading um, William Chang's book, Just Vibrations on care work in the music academy and how that burden always tends to, I shouldn't say always, um, statistically is more likely to fall on uh, women in the yeah. world of music and just in, I would say, probably largely in the world in general. That's just facts. Yeah. 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 Women are private instructors more like more than 75%. And that comes with like lots of volunteer hours of running yep. music teaching organizations and workshops yep. that are unpaid and putting on teaching conferences. And do you feel that women are more primed for the human giver syndrome? I, I know you do, you know, you believe that, but then it's exasperated in music because we're the ones taking on the burden of the volunteer work to make the organization. In this case, I don't think that it's especially big er in music except yeah. to the extent that the canon and academia itself are so much more explicitly white supremacist and patriarchal than mm -hmm. other fields but i think the way that women are treated as sort of like second-class citizens and doing women's work of care and education and training of younger musicians is seen as kind of a lower status thing to do. That when you're a real prominent, prestigious musician, you don't work with training people. You work with people who are already trained and you just make the music. And that's yeah, and like somehow... As if that's somehow harder than teaching a beginner to have the capacity to do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I actually, for quite a long time, 10 or 15 years, was following conferences of the American Choral Directors Association and mm -hmm. just looking at their honor choir conductors. There was a good balance overall of men and women, and there was a, definitely a blend of different ethnicities. But what you could see is most, the vast majority of the women were conducting treble choirs and children's choirs, and mm -hmm. the vast majority of the men were conducting the adult and professional choirs and the even the high school choirs. It was just, so it's not necessarily like a matter of numbers overall, but it's a matter of, um, I'm gonna say the word ghettoization. People really hate that word. It makes them very uncomfortable, but it is sociologically, like in the science of sociology, that's a term that exists that means yeah. a specific thing about how certain people are kept in a certain kind of box and other people are allowed to just go wherever they want. And at this point, like men are not really forbidden from working with children's choirs, but in general, it's considered a less desirable kind of work, less prestigious kind of work. And I've also talked with professional choirs and prestigious uh, community choirs where the conductor is a man and they perform all repertoire by dead white men. You know, maybe you'll get some like really liberal choir and they perform music by living white male composers. Um, <laughs> and when I'm like, hey, so this is super not feminist, like, mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. You're reinforcing this like patriarchal white supremacy. They're like, oh, no, no. Our assistant conductor is a woman. The head of our PR is a woman. I'm like, our yeah. Our administration 
Right. Yeah. Women. Like, oh, you yeah. have women working to support the artistic vision of a white man. You have not made an argument in your own favor. Yeah. <laughs> you are just proving yeah. that, yeah, the problem. When I, um, so I was in my master's research and and then for a couple of years, I was like talking about the statistics on women of color and inclusion in piano pedagogy and educational repertoire. And I was like, I'm kind of sick of talking about these statistics. When I do my doctorate, I'm going to do something different. And so I was like researching on music exceptionalities. And one article that I'm doing for my dissertation is on piano music for students with limb differences, because I've had several students with limb differences and digit differences yeah. and, you know, finding the repertoire. All of the well-known concert repertoire for people with limb differences is statistics. Statistically, it's the majority by male, but yeah. there are thousands of pieces of music for pedagogical works, like yes. early beginner all the way up until that point. And I was cataloging it and I'm turning it into a database and I'm like, wait a second, these are all women. Yeah. Here, I was like, I'm going to escape the talking about, you know, and, and here we are again, because it's women doing the care work yes. of training up these young pianists. Yes. To have music to play so that they can play the big repertoire and they can find a place in the arts. Yeah. Yeah. Creating students who are going to have the capacity to do the things that are considered the prestigious things, but not, it's, it's really so much harder to find a way for someone who doesn't conform to be able to access. You have to build yeah. sometimes literal bridges yeah. and, um, you know, academic music maker makers and and teachers are not interested in building those bridges actually when i was talking to my when i was talking to my academic advisor in my doctoral program i was talking about you know considering this type of stuff in music preparation repertoire selection communication with the choir and he told me that's not music what yeah he told me that's not music so i couldn't study it i had to study i had to do my dissertation on music not on these other extraneous extra musical irrelevant basically things that makes me mad it makes me so oh yeah that's why i mean this happened like literally 12 or 13 years ago and it still like makes my skin crawl yeah that's not music what do you think a conductor does bro yeah. communication <laughs> absolutely it's like yeah that's so yeah oh my yeah. goodness that's just bizarre it's funny like i've had so many guests on that i was saying like what's your best advice for up-and-coming music students they're like take a business class because you need to know how to you need to know how to put on a concert and you're not going to do that by just knowing how to play the music right yeah i think like for pop musicians who don't necessarily need to acquire the same kind of technique that classical musician uh, musicians aspire to but i think not being a music major being a business major being a communications major mm -hmm. is definitely more useful for them than you know learning bach chorale voice leading i was thankful uh, i had a history professor that was like in our fourth year she goes you've written enough essays you're going to learn how to record and edit podcasts now i'm showing my age because there was no such thing as a damn podcast when i was in <laughs> school <laughs> and i was like thank god for dr emily and sorry yeah because <laughs> this turned into a job for me <laughs> yeah yeah this is a huge problem and it was one of the reasons when i finished my doctorate and got a college teaching job i was so lucky to find a position where there was no music department right mm -hmm. there was a department of arts philosophy yeah. and languages was the 
was the department where I'm the only full-time tenure track and eventually tenured music professor. I'm in charge of music at the school. So this is not a place where they're churning out music majors yeah. to go figure out what to do with a music degree. And I didn't have the responsibility of like making them conform to the canon. Ugh, God, it was it was fantastic. As opposed to music schools where you pay so much money to get a degree in music and all you've learned is the music. Maybe mm -hmm. at a large university you'll have, you know, breadth requirements. Well, say you have to take Psych 101 and Geology 101 and... Sociology or... Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have to take one of yeah. those classes. You might have to take a math class. But other than that, you are just studying the music. And the thing these days is that being a musician doesn't work like that anymore. Like yeah. maybe in the Renaissance and even the Baroque <laughs> era, you could get away with like, I have studied music and yeah. I am a virtuoso and this is how it works. But like in the 20th century and definitely 21st century, being a great musician is not enough, which is why it's so complicated to be a musician. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, that is where we are going to end our interview today. Dr. Nagoski and I talked for over an hour and there was really nothing I wanted to cut. So we're going to do a two-part episode. She was so generous with her time and I'm very grateful. So we'll be back next week with the second half of the interview. I hope that you tune in. For now, I just want to encourage you to go out and get yourself a copy of Burnout and give it a read. It's one that you can read rather quickly and also that you will go back to again and again. Thank you to the Saskatoon Symphony Orchestra for sponsoring this podcast. Make sure you head over to saskatoonsymphony.org to purchase tickets for upcoming shows. And if you don't live in the Saskatoon area, you can watch these shows via concert stream by following the link at the top of the website. I'm your host, Olivia Adams. This is Loud and Clear, and you can find me at OA Music Studios on socials. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.